I curse a lot. It's, it's Sorry, fine. I sound like an old, uh, an old <laughs> sort of like, I curse a lot. <laughs> I put curses on people. Yes, yes, I hex <laughs> my enemies. Like you and seven generations. Oh, I mean, I think witches have had a bad name, and frankly, all the witches I've met, they're very wholesome people, and we need that in the left. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge theme of our podcast. We've hmm. interviewed about four people who are yeah. into witch life. Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Chris. Hello. Chris, welcome to the show. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be here at Manchester? Well, okay, um, a little bit about myself. So I am originally from Manchester. I actually grew up here. I spent quite a lot of time away for my studies. I did my undergraduate and master's degree at Cambridge, uh, which is one of the reasons why I don't have a northern accent anymore, which is very peculiar when I moved back to Manchester. I'm like, oh, hello, I'm from here. And they're like, no, you're not, you fucking imposter. They um, file it off. Yeah, <laughs> they beat it out of me. <laughs> you, you don't sound sufficiently posh on man, man. Get your act together. And I came back to Manchester for a couple of reasons, partly because I wanted to kind of see the city again, because, you know, your experience of living in a place when you're sort of under 18 is very different when you can go back as an adult and also Manchester's got a very good reputation for the area I research which is social movement theory so it seemed like a natural fit uh, even if I've now come back and I'm slightly baffled and annoyed that everything that I used to do 10 years ago is no longer there. R.I.P. Jilly's Rockwell. Yeah, yeah pretty much yeah. <laughs> Affleck's is still there I'm yeah, happy about it's that. not as good. Yeah, I know right it's... I can actually afford the things in there now but none of the things I want are there. <laughs> Truly God is dead and we have killed him. So you've mentioned your research mm -hmm. a little bit already, so working yeah. on social movement theory. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of introduce your PhD? Sure. So my PhD area is on masculinity, militancy and misogyny within radical left-wing movements. To put it more simply, it's about sexism within the political left. My provisional thesis title at the moment is Why are there so many misogynists on the left and can they all get in the sea? But jokes aside, it is, I think, quite a serious issue. And it's an issue that has been ongoing for quite a lot of time. And on the one hand, you might say that to an extent, all politics has forms of discrimination in it. You know, mm. we need to look at kind of things that are going on in Westminster around sort of sexism, sexual harassment, see that. What bothers me about it in the political left isn't just because that's my standpoint, it's also because leftism, as I understand it, is a form of politics that's meant to be saying, you know, we should be opposed to things like sexism, misogyny, harassment, and so on and so forth. Yet at the same time, what you've got is a very peculiar contradiction where you will have groups that will declare until they're blue in the face that they're, you know, the socialists and feminists, yet within those groups there is a definite gendered hierarchy in terms of organising, in terms of what pe roles people play in those organisations, and in extreme cases that can go into some quite dark places, and to me that's fundamentally unacceptable as an activist, and also something that I don't think academics have really looked into in any great detail. Yeah, and it is something that I think you do see you know in terms of the less sort of insidious forms but still things that if you're not sort of tuned into mm. the dynamics of gender it's just so easy to miss this is an example from activism but it's mm. just something that just came up over sure. the summer i was at a conference right. where they had during the, one of the two lunches of the two-day conference they had a women's lunch mm. event, mm. which we were supposed to go to and talk about like, well, what issues do we face as women mm. in the history of the Americas? And what it 
boiled down to is that all the women, there wasn't a separate buffet. We were mm. told to collect our food, go off to a different room, mm. and all the male early career researchers were left in a room with all the established male academics. Right, and ladies, if you, could, if you could just step aside for a moment, the men are going to have serious discussions. <laughs> so what they essentially did was yeah. create a situation where access to some of the most influential people in the field was limited to male researchers, mm. and the women had to go off to another room and talk about why it was hard. Yeah. Because <laughs> of things like right. this. Yes. Isn't it terribly hard as a woman getting speaking to the top in, uh, people in the field when we have to go into another room? <laughs> we are literally being segregated. I mean, that kind of fits with a lot of the stuff that I've witnessed in my experience as an activist. I was very struck by it. So my sort of political kind of engagement began with the student movement that, that sort of kicked off from about 2010 onwards mm. around tuition fees. and. I found myself kind of baffled by some of the things that I witnessed. I, I remember very striking there was a big conference in London just before like the big demonstrations kicked off and it had been agreed, similar to what you said, that there was going to be like a sort of women's caucus and I was like, yep, cool, great. But it felt, it, once the women had left, it was like the men were all sitting there and were like, right, now we're going to plan the demonstration. And I was sort of thinking, why can't the women be involved in this? Like, mm. why, why have they gone off into a separate room? to not have that really important discussion about what kind of tactics we're going to engage in, you know, what kind of risks we're going to take. Surely this is not a very accessible or particularly, I would say, socialist way of organising. Mm. And I raised that as a concern. People sort of looked at me as if I just sort of said, oh, by the way, I'm actually a Liberal Democrat. You know, it's... <laughs> I'm not a Liberal Democrat. <laughs> Card-carrying Labour Party member. And that is sort of been my experience of kind of a lot of activist spaces and when I speak to sort of female identifying friends who've been involved in radical left groups they will tell me similar anecdotes whether it is like separation in terms of organizing whether it's the kind of thing where maybe there's an occupation and kind of women are sort of left with domestic tasks like mm. sort of cooking and stuff where you know they'll be talked over by men and that I would say is a very isn't just you know a minor issue it's not something you can brush off radical left activism to me is what I would consider to be a prefigurative politics like it's about trying to create the world you want to see in the spaces you occupy and if we're not consciously and critically examining dynamics around gender and sex then there's absolutely no point in sitting down and planning a new economy so do you see what I mean mm, totally there's some you maybe think there's something about the kind of the invisibility of maleness yes that you have a gender if you aren't cis male yeah but if you are cis male then you don't need to participate in gender thinking or gender spaces yeah. because it's not necessarily these people's fault but they hmm. see themselves as the default person yeah. I was thinking from more historian's perspective, um, especially since I'm looking at China mm. and being Russian, I'm also familiar with kind of Soviet sure, sure. posters and stuff like that. And mm. the ideas in majority of situations when you are trying to promote a slogan, yeah. you're going to use a male figure mm -hmm. or you are going to use a figure who might be female but would be wearing the kind of clothes that gender-wise would be more associated with being male. So like workers' overalls yeah. and things like that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's just something that I always found really interesting in that socialism and communism was very much associated with mm. women's rights and they yeah. tried to promote them but at the same time the visuals that they created were very much aimed at a male mm. audience. Yeah, exactly. And I think you caught on a really interesting point because that kind of Soviet style of socialism is still very influential on the radical left today, whether they're, uh, you know, in favour of it or against it. And that kind of iconography 
and almost like it's an epistemology of where gender sits within the radical left. It's very striking that, for example, like in, in the early parts of sort of like the Russian Revolution, shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution, you saw a lot of things happening that seemed very good for women's rights. So like, you know, collectivization of childcare, legalization of abortion, all of this sort of stuff. And then gradually the Soviet Union becomes more conservative in its gender politics. And at the same time, you see a knock-on effect in gender politics within radical left groups in the West. So, you know, until like the, I think it was like mid-1970s, orthodox communist parties described both feminism and homosexuality as the, the rubbish heap of capitalism, right? You know, it was seen as bourgeois deviation from what true politics was. And it was always implied that that true politics was this kind of quite sort of masculine intellectual critique of capitalism, right? From that, you kind of get offshoots of like activist groups to say, no, we don't want to have anything to do with that. But at the same time, those structures, that iconography is very strikingly still exists. As well, I think, in terms of like, one thing that really fascinates me is kind of concepts of political militancy. Because it seems like sometimes when you're in certain activist spaces, the kind of actions you're willing to take and you know how valuable those seem tend to be sort of conceived of in very masculine terms like a really good example of this would be something like extinction rebellion who have a big emphasis on arrestability in their activism right now on the one hand i totally sympathize with that it's a powerful symbol you know take uh, action that will get you arrested is something that has a rich history from like the civil rights movement and suffragettes movement but it is also you've got to think for a second like who which groups are going to be more likely to be able to get arrested and be okay? It tends to be male people who come from a certain kind of economic background where they can afford access to legal support rather than perhaps women or people from other minority groups. And I've certainly, with my experience of being in Extinction Rebellion, it seems like if you're not willing to sort of throw yourself at the cops and get arrested, you're seen as somehow slightly lesser of an activist. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it totally does. And there is a sort of a machismo. Yeah, very uh, much so. Within it. So can you tell us a bit sort of about basically how you're approaching your, your research? What, what sources are you using? Are you doing interviews? So at the moment, I'm kind of trying to draw a little bit in terms of my theory, kind of draw little bits together from what stuff has been written critiquing kind of gender dynamics in the radical left. Now that's drawing on kind of established masculinity theory, but a lot of it is coming from activists themselves because it seems like activists tend to produce their own knowledge, right? They tend to produce their own critiques, their own analysis. Any kind of activist group will be publishing their own blogs, their own zines, their own websites, that kind of thing. So a lot of what I'm drawing on is their accounts of saying, well, this is the problem. Okay, um, and then in terms of how I'm going to go about analysing it, it will be a case of looking both at the way in which kind of self-identifying men on the left kind of experience themselves both as men and as activists and how that has impacted on their understandings of issues around gender dynamics and sexuality. That will be done through sort of focus group discussions with them, but I'm also going to be reaching out to women and non-binary people on the left who have tried to make a conscious effort to critique what they see as these kind of, in some cases, machismo, in other cases, misogyny within their movements. I'll be interviewing them kind of as experts, if you like, in the field, sort of saying, well, what issues do you have and what would you want to see happening in your movements? And then use that data within the male focus group to say, okay, you guys have talked about how you've developed as activists. This is what people 
people in your movements have said, how do you respond to that? I'm also drawing a little bit on some archival research that I've been doing around anti-sexism in the British left particularly. One of the hilarious things about being on the political left is we're very bad at remembering things, right? <laughs> uh, we're very good at remembering, you know, certain things like we all can, most British leftists will be able to tell you about the Bolshevik revolution till they're blue in the face. But what one little un, sort of analysed chapter of socialism in this country was that between the 1970s and 1990s, a group of socialist men involved in a variety of organisations from the Socialist Workers Party to Labour to a bunch of communist movements got together and basically said, we see that the problem is sexism. We don't like the fact that we are hearing about our female comrades getting harassed or put down in spaces. We want to do something about it. So this group of men called, formed a collective which they called themselves Achilles Heel and from about 1972 to 1991 they published a regular journal of men's anti-sexist politics within a socialist framework and it is fascinating reading because you're essentially I'm reading the discussions that these guys had, what, 20, 30 even years ago, and I'm thinking you could be describing the left now. They are talking about meeting dynamics, they're talking about language, they are kind of trying to guess, form a sense of what it means to consciously turn against this kind of militant misogyny, still have a form of kind of militant activism that embraces vulnerability, both of the self, but also rethinks relationships with women and children. It's very telling, I think, that those movements didn't really survive. Basically, by about sort of the early 90s, they kind of burned out because most of the hierarchies of these activist networks were just not interested. You know, quite a lot of the articles you read in the journals would be like people talking about how they went to their, you know, their constituency Labour Party and they tried to raise motions about conscious commitments towards anti-sexist politics and those would just be ignored. There was something more important, you know, we had to talk about the miners strikes, we had to talk about this, we had to talk about that. Yet at the same time, I feel like there isn't really a space for anti-socialist, and sorry, anti-socialist <laughs> tactics in the left. Ha ha ha! I'm actually a cop. Um, <laughs> Anti-sexist men's politics within the left. Because if you think about a lot of the anti-sexist movements that exist at the moment that are kind of aimed at men, like things I'm thinking like things like the Good Lad Initiative and stuff like that. I I think they're good. They're great. But it's very much a surface level discussion. You know, it's kind of like talking. It's great that you're talking about reflecting on your own conduct, but I think that needs to be fitted into a political framework where it's men consciously confronting themselves about their own sexism is part and parcel of trying to have a radical new vision for the world mm -hmm. that fits into a socialist framework. So I have a question, and it. I bet it's one that comes up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. How do you handle your own positionality in Ooh. this? How does it work to be a male-presenting mm -hmm. person yep. who wants to access women's testimony on yep. their experiences of sexism, who wants to talk to men about their perpetration yep. of sexism? How do you keep yourself, do you keep yourself in it or do you keep yourself out? Well, that is a very good question, and I think my short answer is that I do keep myself in it because I would be lying if I said I'm not part of the problem. One thing that I'm trying to be very conscious of is not to try and position myself as some kind of, you know, hero of anti-sexism, right? Some kind of, like, leading figure, some kind of teacher, because I know that a lot of these things are structural issues that I benefit from and in many ways perpetuate. In terms of, like, how I'm practically going about it, I've taken a lot of guidance from a really interesting 
interesting group of scholars and activists called Salvage Collective. Now, what they basically are is an activist scholar network. It's formed loosely around the Open University in about 2014. And that was really coming out of the fact that there was a very public scandal within the British left about a cover-up around some sexual violence. And what Salvage Collective did was they got together and they basically said, we're going to study this issue. We're an all-female, all-non-binary <coughs> network. We're going to produce academic knowledge, but we're also going to produce tools for activists who want to either study this or confront it within their movements. So they went on to publish a load of journal research, but for every journal they put out, they put out a zine, they put out a vlog, so they were making their research accessible. And over the past sort of four or five years, both within the time I've been in academia and outside of it, I've engaged with that group and kind of taken guidance with them on like how I can position myself within my own research. How do I make sure that I am being reciprocal? For example, if I'm going to an activist network and talking to a bunch of women, you know, about their experiences of sexism and misogyny, what can I give back to that movement? So depending on the movement I'll be speaking to, it might be that I do some labour for them in some form. So, you know, some of the networks that I've worked with in the past, I've volunteered to help run childcare sessions for them while they engage in meetings and things like that. I am conscious though that when I talk about my research, I start reflecting on myself and I sort of start to think, well, are there aspects in me that are part of the problem. So like one of the things that you see is very striking in leftist masculinity is there's a lot of kind of like intellectual machismo. So not necessarily the kind of machismo where you want to lob yourself at the cops, more the kind of look at me I've read all of Marx and I understood it, right? I'm conscious <laughs> that in a lot of, you know all the type. Marx. Yes, all of it, not just some of it, all of it. I haven't read that all of Marx. That sounds like masochism. Yes, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like yeah. that's kind of like sense of intellectual power and I know I do that right because I know that I've come from an educated background I know often in activist spaces I'm suddenly catch myself and I think no what, what I'm trying to do is set the analysis for the group because I'm sort of positioning myself as as an I said expert. earlier an expert yeah mm -hmm. and I'm not an expert right you know I should not be talking over people in that sense. So one of the ways I'm trying to incorporate this into my own research methodology is to use a bit of autoethnography, right? To consciously interrogate my own development as an activist mm. from, you know, those early days when I was engaging in the student movement. Because back in those days, I was not a sociologist. I studied English literature. I was going to have been perfectly happy doing that. But it was in that engagement in radical politics that brought me to where I am now. And I think kind of looking at the things that I have done and the ways in which I am part of that system is a way of enriching my data and helping me be really conscious about my positionality and relationship to my participants. And as you kind of also declare your interests yeah. and where you are. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's something that make it makes it very honest. Mm. Yeah. I think it's something that how do I put this? The more different you are from the subject of your study, yeah. the more work you have to put into that, or that's mm. how it's always felt in academia. But yeah. I also think that we probably also need to examine our similarities exactly. in a way. That like, you know, if you were studying a community of people that were exactly like you, mm. you're not invisible no. there. Like they've they've formed you and you've formed them and there's a sort of uh, give and take to that. Have you considered when you are gonna seek women's testimony or when you've done it whether there's ways of literally removing yourself from it i'm just thinking about like when i talk about sexism mm. to men even to men who i know are sympathetic even mm. to men who i believe you know 100 percent support the cause i still think i say different things from when i'm discussing sexism mm. with other female presenting people sure and i don't know i was wondering i was thinking about things like having them interview each other 
That is certainly something I've been playing around with the idea of because I feel like having a space where kind of women are sharing experience, even if I was in the room and, and you know, and they know that I'm sympathetic and trying to position myself as an ally, I, I totally empathise with the idea they may not be as open with me as they might be with other people. So the idea of kind of having them interview each other is certainly something I've played with. Um, the idea of kind of trying to almost find a way of interviewing them where I am as silent as possible and position mm. myself as like, you're the teacher, teach me, I want to learn from you, I am not the expert. It, that is a, a power dynamic that I would want to create. The difficulty I have with that is fitting that into kind of what you were sort of, I think, touching on earlier, the kind of established epistemologies and, you know, ways of doing research within social movement theory and sort of social sciences more generally throughout any kind of social science and humanity we've got this whole idea that the researcher is the expert you know they are on an extreme case we've got that sort of you know detached positivism and you know it, you know everything's very objective but even within the fields of social movement studies where a lot of people are studying movements they are very actively involved in I find sometimes when I talk to other colleagues about what my plans are, they sort of see it as a being a bit odd. So, like for example, one thing I'm I'm playing with the idea of is encouraging my female participants to produce a zine about their experiences. I'm a big fan of kind of creative research methods. I'm a big fan of the way that zines are used within radical leftist spaces, and I think that fits very well with kind of the framework and the and the sort of culture I'm going to be going into. But when you're talking to other theorists, sometimes they sort of they they roll their eyes a bit and it's like, well, you should be doing ethnography you should be doing this, you should be doing that, and it's like, well, I can do that, but I don't want to be essentially the worst kind of ally. I don't want to be the sort of academic who bursts in and be like, right, ladies, step aside, I will liberate you on my white horse of male feminism. You, you see what I mean? I do see what you mean, but it is such a complicated thing because mm. at the same time, encouraging these women to produce a zine about their experiences, like, can you do homework about sexism? Exactly. <laughs> like, That's the thing. You and yeah. And just like, you're a woman and so I need you to talk about sexism, I need mm. you to reflect on sexism more mm. than you have to on a regular basis because yeah. it happens to you all the time. Yes. But let's, you know, let's revisit it, let's academicise it. Yeah, yeah. And then mm. ultimately, for my own valorisation, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, it is, and that latter point about my own valorisation is something I'm very conscious of because the way I see it, because my motivation for doing this is primarily from my experience as an activist, I want to make sure that what I do goes back to the movement, mm. right? I want to be able to use this research to create tools and resources for activist communities who are concerned about anything that's happening in their movement to find ways of dealing with that, right? But I'm also conscious I need to write an 80,000 word PhD so I can call myself Dr. War. I think that's probably the other, only other reason I want to have a PhD. I want to be called Dr. War. There's also a Dr. Death in my department. I'm going to write a paper with him. I don't know about what, but I just love the idea of war and death. I hope we can dig out Dr. Pestilence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Dr. <laughs> famine and then I'll just retire but no I, I am conscious like it's all very well me saying right this for me is about producing tools to help activists to give something back to those women and non-binary people that I interview but I'm also conscious I am constrained by the fact that I'm doing this as a PhD and also I can't lie and say that this is entirely altruistic. I do want to have a PhD because I want to advance my career into academia. So what you've got is this really complicated sort of web of different positionalities. And I think it's interesting you kind of brought up that question of, you know, is asking women to make a zine actually just giving them additional labour? Because that's another thought that came into my head. And then you mull over that for a bit and you think, well, which, which hat am I wearing here? Am I wearing the hat of an ally and an activist? Am I wearing it as a scholar? And then you keep going through these long chains of questions. 
the short answer, I think, there isn't really an objective answer, you know, as there isn't in so many things. It's it's very difficult to know what the most moral thing to do is, but the project still needs to be done. Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking, is this mm. is work that needs to happen, and no matter what approach you take, someone will be able to look at it and find fault with it. Yeah. So I didn't doubt for a second that you hadn't spent loads of time thinking about your methodology and your positionality. <laughs> because that's what we have to do. Sure. So it's just interesting to look at the challenges mm. just of, of working in that space. Exactly. Yeah. And especially with that's work that needs to happen and in a way the treatment of those women is already unfair. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's kind of that's a toughie. It is, it is. It is a toughie. It's oh, I do white. enjoy working on dead people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know. I miss doing this literature show because I could work on dead people. It was just like is this poem oh, nice? Yes. Yet. Fictional people. Fictional people. <laughs> like, Oliver Twist does not care what I do about him. There's Why did I change subject? Kind um, of a running joke because in the history community we're mm. relatively divided between those of us who are working in the latter half of the 20th century and yeah. and those of us who are working before that. Yeah. You know, like it will get thrown around like you're not a historian, you're a sociologist. I'm like, mm. no, I'm not. Sociologists have to be way more ethical. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting you bring up the kind of question of ethics because I feel like that's what we've been talking about here. Like, what is ethical uh, towards activists and towards women who have experienced sexism? The other thing you've got to navigate is what the university considers ethical. Mm. Because So I did my, my master's degree on a very similar research topic to this. I was looking at a specific example of like how a left group had mishandled an allegation of sexual violence. And I found getting ethical approval for that while staying true to my own principles was a nightmare, right? Mm. So, very basic thing, when I filled in my ethics form, I sent it in, and I got it back saying, oh, we can't prove this um, unless you include a proviso that if you're in an activist space and you hear of something that may be considered illegal, you have to call the police immediately. <laughs> Which is like... You're basically asking me to do something that is completely cutting me off from my participants, right? You're basically asking me to go in and be a bit like that Steve Buscemi meme where I'm like, hello, fellow kids, I'm not a cop. And that, like, for me, I had to completely change the emphasis of my project from interviewing people primarily to more of a discourse analysis of documents because I couldn't go into that space knowing that I would have to potentially do that and this i found this even more boring because it was at the time of this, infiltration the infiltration of a guy issue. called mark kennedy for those of you who for anyone who doesn't know about that he was a metropolitan police officer who infiltrated numerous activist groups and even had full-on sexual relationships with female activists abusing his position of power so from basically it almost felt like i was being told i had to be that guy be, exactly <laughs> and similarly you know i've been writing my ethics form recently and i was told the ethical questions that i'm considering those questions of like Am I asking people to do unpaid labour, all of this stuff and so on and so forth? Aren't really things that the university are going to look for. They're going to look for, you know, am I going to do anything that's going to get them sued? And I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, it's almost as if my ethics and the ethical requirements of the university don't quite match up. Yeah. Which leads me to the question of, like, how do I not do what I did in my master's where I had to just, you know, warp things to fit that requirement? And, you know, how do I stay true to what I want to do? can talk about this a little bit off the air. Yeah. <laughs>
One more question yeah. that I suspect might, if you're going to have to go like 15 minutes or longer no, on this no, answer, no, no. just say, because uh, we'll just leave it. But I'm actually, I'm about to out myself as something that is not necessarily very popular. I am really interested in the impact of sexism and sexist discourse on men and male presenting mm -hmm. people. And I think anyone who knows me and talks about sexism with me will be, uh, I'm the first mm -hmm. person to talk about how it cuts both ways and right. the impact of it, even though ultimately it is true that women and non-binary people mm. have the worst time of it. Mm. Sexism affects everyone. It sure. is a negative force that affects everyone. So is that going to be something that, that comes in? Are you going to look at ideas of sexism that affect men? You mentioned sort of um, activist masculinity yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So in the sort of anti-sexist journals I mentioned earlier, what they keep talking about this recurring figure of the sad militant, right? They talk about kind of this sort of machismo militant masculinity as not just being obviously harmful to women and binary people, but being harmful to the self. What was very interesting was that these journals were founded by men who were very interested in kind of therapy uh, and the anti-psychiatry movement, kind of seeing ways in which they could use political psychology to try and support themselves. And they make, I think, a very good point that these models of masculinity don't leave room for men to show their own vulnerabilities, right? So like if you're part of a militant activist group, you are expected to always be switched on, to always be outside the paper, organising, always reading, never really having time for your own relationships, never really having time for the self, never really having time to kind of reflect on your own health and well-being. And I can certainly, you know, in this sort of auto-ethnographic side of my project, I'm certainly going to be reflecting on how, as someone who has complex mental health problems, being in those environments was really not healthy for me. Mm. You know, as much as I was committed to the politics, there would be times when I just felt like I was being encouraged to, almost in a very regressive, conservative way, like, you know, man up. Mm. I, not that that term was ever used, but it was a similar sort of thing. It's, it's no surprise to me that a lot of activists and this is something I'd be interested to study later to see if it's whether it's predominantly male or female activists, go through periods of kind of burnout and withdrawal. So, you know, I there was a period from about 2015 to 2017 where I kind of did no politics, right? I mean, I engaged with Labour, you know, I voted for them, I was supporting Jeremy Corbyn and stuff, but I wasn't going out to radical meetings and things simply because in the previous years I had just... Part of that kind of cultural mayu was just... It wasn't good for my mental health. Yeah. It asks a lot. Yeah. It asks a lot of you in terms of dedication, commitment, mm -hmm. a kind of perfection yeah. in a way that, you know, you aren't necessarily permitted to, that if you step away, then, you know, what about the people who can't step away because politics yeah. is their yeah. daily life and yeah. stuff, that you should feel bad. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, the other thing that I was thinking about while you were talking about that, and it's a good example of how sexism that affects Mm. men also affect women yeah. or like they don't have to be women but men's partners mm. those guys who are putting their mental health at risk yeah. by fully engaging or engaging to the full extent that they can with those that often is a trauma that then yeah. is fed on to partners exactly the, the partner becomes a caregiver a kind of support yeah. system that yeah. makes their activism possible and i certainly witnessed that firsthand particularly when i had sort of i knew people involved in movements and i also knew their partner it would be a case of like they would be trying to encourage their partner to take a step back simply because they were having to do so much emotional labor for them and i'm reflecting on my own experiences i can see how 
with my then partner, because I was so committed, I would often almost expect her to be there to be the supportive person, even though she was involved in the same movements. And I caught myself, one of the reasons I took a step back was because I had a realization that this was completely unfair. She went to the same meeting, she was engaged in the same issues. Why is she gotta be the one doing the listening? That's not fair on her. But yes, it is, again, it comes back to that whole idea in which almost there's the, the domestic politics that are kind of thrown onto women in wider society are still Still replicated in leftist spaces. You know, I, the, reading, I was doing some archival research on some of those journals I mentioned, and I, there was an article from an activist in the Communist Party of Great Britain who was talking about how frustrated she found it that she and her husband would go to the same meetings, they go on the same picket lines, and then they get home and he'd expect her to have cooked dinner even when they'd been out for like 20 hours a day, you know, and he didn't even think about it. Right? That to me is an important issue and a way in which kind of like that figure of the sad militant isn't just destructive for self but also destructive to intimate relationships and you know I would say relationships with children as well particularly mm -hmm. if you're in a if you're a parent. Wow I, I could honestly talk about this all day but we are yeah. already running long <clears throat> I'm sorry. That's fine I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> um, no one else does but I do. I was just about to say I quite like it. Oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the Last thing that we like to ask our guests mm. is just if they have some kind of funny or humorous anecdote from their research life. Yes, I was thinking about this along the way as I was walking over here today and the main anecdote that comes to my mind was it was kind of tangentially connected to my research so I was co-writing a bit of research with a friend of mine on anarchist movements and we were, I think this would have been about 2014, we were on a big protest in London. I think it was one of the trade union TUC demos with a bunch of anarchists who we were observing while they were doing their thing and we then got, well, not quite arrested by the police. In, when I say not quite arrested, they basically were doing a tactic where they were sort of grabbing groups of activists like, and then just temporarily detaining them to try and de-escalate the situation. So they didn't raise the riots or anything, we were just kettled, grabbed, dragged into the back of a police van and then the police just left. And I was there thinking, have I been arrested? If so, this is very underwhelming. So after about half an hour, we're all sitting there thinking, well, what do we do now? At which point the door of the police van opens and I kid you not, a man dressed as a clown sticks his head in. <laughs> now, it turns out that these clowns, as they politely explain, are from Lambeth Militant Surrealist Society, uh, and they've been going around unarresting people, and they ask very politely, would we like to be unarrested? <laughs> At which point, they so we had our hands kind of cable tied by the police, they came in their scissors, they were cutting us loose, they opened the, the door of the van, we all legged it out, and then the police officers who detained us came back around the corner with another group, and what they would have seen was me, my colleague, and about three or four others, and a bunch of men in full-on clown costumes fucking legging it up the street. <laughs> long shoes flying. Yeah, long shoes flapping, noses honking, and me <laughs> waving politely, thinking, oh, this is not how I expected my day to go. So, yeah, I think a highlight of my entire research career, if not my entire life, was being unarrested by some clowns. Do, do we think it's too late for me to retrain as a sociologist yeah, and work it. on these surrealist yes. uh, If any of the clowns are listening, cheers, guys. I never got to say thanks properly. It's okay. You can do an oral history of the clowns uh, as your next project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they're all mimes. It's a very challenging yeah. oral history project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, Chris, thank you so much for being our guest today. Yep. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for having me. More about your research. Anna, thank you for being here as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Georgia. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens <laughs> in the podcast stays in the podcast. Thank Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Not Safe for Publication 
is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.